welcome to the Destiny Podcast. We hope this message blesses you. So we talked in that first part about what happened with the fall and creation and Adam at rest being the, the pattern and the plan for all of mankind. And so we, we just read Genesis 3 where, where God is saying, you know, this is what death looks like. This, this, I used to read this as God pronouncing judgment upon mankind and, and cursing humanity, but as I've, as I've read it again over the last few years, actually what I see is this is God just explaining what death looks like. You know, he said, if you eat this, you will die. And now he's saying, this is what death looks like. It looks like thorns and thistles. It looks like pain in childbirth. It looks like gender division and, and gender inequality. But it's not signifying a change in God and his attitude to mankind. It's just, he's pointing out to his kids, guys, this is the consequences of what you've done. The consequences of what you've done are all this. And it's not a change in God. I love verse 21 of Genesis 3. It's just a simple little statement. And it says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Now, Adam and his wife had already covered themselves. The, the, the Hebrew Bible says that they, they, they sewed together an apron of fig leaves. So they covered the, the front with fig leaves. So what, what was God doing? You know, they'd lived under this covering of his love. All they knew was his love. It, it kept them in, in an innocent state where they were naked and didn't think anything wrong with that, weren't ashamed, weren't scared to face God in it. But suddenly they, they broke that. They came out from under that covering of love to, and started trying to make their own covering. And what God is doing is, is just trying to bring them back under that covering of love. You know, they, they'd made their own attempts at becoming acceptable. That's what the fig leaves were about, as I said earlier. And we've all been there. And sometimes we still are. <laughs> we try and provide our own covering. and Because otherwise, you know, I learned that if I don't have those fig leaves on, I can become a victim. You know, you know when I was a little boy, I get bullied because I, didn't, I hadn't learned how to put fig leaves on and make myself look tough. And so I learned how to be the, the, the aggressor and how to be first in, in someone's face, which nine times out of ten would cause them to back down. And so Adam and his wife have, have done that. And the interesting thing is that it's it comes out of shame. See, there's a difference between shame and guilt. Guilt says that I've done something wrong. Shame says I am wrong. And so Adam's in this place where he thinks, I'm wrong to be me. I'm wrong to be naked. I'm wrong to be in this place. I'm wrong to be existing like this. And it's in that place that the father comes to him. You know, it didn't, it didn't make Adam get his act together and straighten out before he came to him and loved him. Someone once said, you know, you can try as much as you like to get your act together. But once you've got it together, it's still just an act. And so it's in that place of his brokenness and shame that God comes to him. 
You see, he's not changed how he approaches mankind. He's not changed in what he offers them. He still offers them love. He still offers them an embrace. He still offers them acceptance. And do you know the incredible thing? When he does this with the cloak, when he, he comes to Adam with this cloak of skins, Adam hasn't repented. Adam is unrepentant. There is nowhere in the Bible that tells us Adam repented of his sin. Nowhere at all. <laughs> and yet, you know, and we saw that, didn't we? And he said, God gives him the chance to repent. He says, what is this you've done, Adam? And he says, it wasn't me, it was her. And it was you. I'm blameless. So he refuses to repent. And yet, in that unrepentant state, God comes to him with love. Acceptance. Inheritance, even. That's what the cloak is all about. You see, in, in Jesus' time, and previously in Hebrew culture and in Roman culture, there, there was a practice. And so I'm, I'm a father, and you guys are all my kids. Now, I don't know which one of you is going to grow up to be the strongest and the fittest and the most able. So I, I don't appoint the eldest as the heir. I wait until I decide who's going to be the strongest, the fittest, the most able. And I look around and I say, okay, Dennis is the man. He's, he's looks as though he's the survivor out of all of, my, all of my kids. And I take Dennis and I bring him into a, a, a public meeting like this. And I have a table here. And on the table I have a cloak and a ring. And I, I have Dennis stand beside me and I put my arm around him and I put my, the cloak on him and I say, this is my son whom I love. Familiar words? Do you recognize those words? Jesus at his baptism, this is my son whom I love. That's what they did in, in secular society. And then we'd go back to the table and he would get the ring and put the ring on his son's finger. Is that familiar from scripture? A cloak and a ring being put on a son? Luke 15, what does the father do to the prodigal son? Yes. He puts the best robe in the house on him. He puts a ring in his finger and shoes on his feet. In the story of the prodigal. You see, this picture is throughout Scripture. What that Roman ceremony was, what that Hebrew ceremony was doing, the, son, the father was taking Dennis as his son and saying, this is the one who will inherit everything. And I put this cloak on him and this ring on him to signify that he is the heir. He's always been the son. And now he's the heir. And so, you know, when Paul says in Galatians, once we were no different from slaves when we were children, but when the time came, God sent his son into the world to redeem us that we might receive the full rights of sonship. We're cloaked with Christ. The son was cloaked in Luke 15. Elijah cloaks Elisha. And when Elijah is taken up into heaven, Elisha cries out, My father, my father, the horses and chariots of Israel. He recognized the relationship that this cloak signified. And we see God cloaking Adam in the garden. It's the same thing. He's saying to Adam, you're still my son. Your humanity are still my heirs. 
there is still an inheritance for my offspring. Wow. Because we, we, just, we can just skip over that verse and not realize the significance of it. God is saying, saying, I still accept you as my son. That's what happened in Luke 15, isn't it? The father throws his arms around the son. He puts the best robe on him. He's saying, I still accept you as my son. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been or who you've done it with, I still accept you. You have not lost your place as my child. And this is what God was saying to Adam. When he put his arms around him to fasten that cloak around Adam, he's saying, you are still my son. You have not lost your place in my affection. You have not lost your status as my heir. Adam didn't understand it. He didn't get what the father was doing. And he's still saying to us, we were in Adam. At that point in time, when God put that cloak in Adam, we were in our ancestors. And he's saying to all of us, you have not lost your status as my children. You have not lost your position as my heirs. And you have not lost your place in my affection. That's why even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Because we had never lost our place in Father's affections. This is huge, guys. Because this is totally opposite to what we've been taught about who God is. You know, I always believed that God was angry. And so he punished Adam and his wife by putting them out of the garden. And so we, we live with that, don't we? Sin has to be seen to be punished. The sinner has to be dealt with. And we take it from this, what happened in the garden. But is that really what happened? Did God really punish the man and woman in the garden? It's what I always believed. It's what I've always been taught. But it's not what I believe anymore. Let's read what happened. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 22 to verse 24. The Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword, flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So the reason God gives for putting the man out of the garden is that he may not eat from the tree of life and live forever. Why was that a problem? Well, can you imagine if Adam had stayed in the garden? Here's the interesting thing, by the way. The Bible says after he drove the man out, he didn't drive the woman out, just the man. Anyway. Just throwing that out there to confuse you. <laughs> but, but after he puts the man out, it's so that the man can't live forever. And if he had lived forever, he'd be alive today. Can you imagine if Adam was alive today? Thousands and thousands of years. But what would he have become? Because sin <coughs> is working in his body, in his mind, in his soul, every day of his existence. Who's seen Lord of the Rings? Yep. The, yeah, you've seen Lord of the Rings, the movie? You know, 
Is it in the, the second one, the, in the, the, the Two Towers, that you get the story of Gollum? And how he was this happy little guy who finds the ring of power and it, the evil in this ring corrupts him so much that he even forgets what his real name is. That's what would have happened to Adam. He would have become like Gollum. So corrupted and so destroyed, there would have been hardly anything of humanity left in him. Awful. His character, his, his nature, his identity, his sense of self would all be destroyed by the corruption of sin over thousands of years. And so, to save him from that, not to punish him, but to save him from that fate, God puts him out of the garden. You see, God can look up ahead. He sees what's coming for the human race. The destruction, the poverty, the, the hate, the evil, the, the wars, the, the death. He sees all of that and he says, I need to save my children from that future. And the only way to do it is to put them out of the garden. You know, when I was a little boy, I said yesterday, my mum sent me to elocution lessons. So I didn't grow up speaking like this. I grew up with a very strong Glasgow accent dialect. And my mum recognised that if I want to do anything in the world, if I want to achieve anything in the world, I need to change the way I speak. And so she sent me very young to elocution lessons. You know, she, she put importance on education because where she came from and how she spoke limited her education opportunities. And so she, she knew that if I wanted to go in education and do something more than she did, I would have to change how I spoke. And so she sent me to elocution lessons. She looked into my future, you could say, and saw my future with an education or without an education. And so she began to put in place steps that would help me to advance in education and, and in life. But I was eight years old, I couldn't see that far ahead. You know, I could only see to the weekend. <laughs> and at the weekend, she was sending me back to school to learn how to speak. I'd been speaking since I was one year old, <laughs> 18 months old, you know. And she's saying, I have to go to school to learn how to speak on a Saturday. I really was not happy about that. But that's because I couldn't see as far ahead as my mum could see. And Adam couldn't see as far ahead as God could see. And so when God puts him out of the garden, it's interpreted as punishment. And it wasn't just all the spiritual fallout and the spiritual death, but now Adam will taste physical death. But that's not punishment. We think that's punishment, that God is punishing him not to live forever by letting him taste death. But death is the only way Adam could escape the corruption of sin in this world. Physical death, going back to the dust that he came from, was the only way Adam was going to escape the corruption of this world upon his body and upon his soul and upon his mind. And so God limits his years upon the earth. And he did it out of mercy and love. But he knew that if he left it there, death would be the end. And so instead of leaving that as the end, he sent Jesus to defeat death. 
You know, someone said that in that natural state, we're always living between birth and death. But in Christ, we're living between death and resurrection. You see, God didn't leave us in fear of just that span between life and death, uh, birth and death. But he sent Jesus to promise us that life beyond death. He promised us resurrection. He didn't leave Adam and Adam's descendants in the dust of death. This is incredible, amazing love. We don't always understand love. I didn't understand when my mum would, would spank me and say, this hurts me more than it hurts you. Uh, yeah, tell, tell my bottom that, you know, tell, tell that to my backside. <laughs> but I get it. When I read this, I get it. What did that do in the heart of God? Not only was he having to put his son out and watch his son die, but he had his son misunderstand his reasons for doing it. And all of his children misunderstand his reasons. And suddenly he became the angry, punishing God rather than the loving, caring father that he truly is. And so when Paul prays, I pray the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. I pray that God would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation to know him better. He's saying, I want the eyes of your heart to be re-enlightened so that you can understand he's never changed. He's still the same father that he was before the fall. And what he did was an act of love to save his children from the, the total corruption of their beings. And he sent Jesus to bring us out of the dust of death into a resurrection life that tastes just like life tasted before Adam sinned. And to do that, he sent Jesus to rescue us from our futile way of life, handed down to us from our ancestors. Adam being put out of the garden was part of God's rescue plan for mankind. To rescue us from the result of Satan's deceit. And we couldn't understand that. And so we've inherited Adam's wrong understanding. We have interpreted this as God taking revenge upon humanity. It's retribution upon, upon sinful human beings. But humanity was never the problem. Mankind was never a problem to God. God was never a problem to mankind. Sin and death was mankind's problem. And Jesus came to die on the cross, not to deal with mankind, but to deal with sin and death. Jesus did not take your place on the cross. There was never a place on the cross for you. It was sin and death that was nailed to the cross with Jesus, not our humanity. In fact, Paul even says that in Colossians, doesn't he? He says he took the, the code that was written against us and he nailed it to the tree with him. In Colossians, I think it's Colossians 1.15 through to 21, Paul talks about death, sin and Satan being nailed to the cross with Christ. He doesn't talk about us being nailed to the cross because the cross was never intended for us. The cross was to put to death the working of sin and death. Our sins separated us from God, that's true. But they never separated God from us. God never withdrew his love. 
That's what we see in the garden. Adam withdraws his affection and his fellowship, but God still comes to him in his sin, in his brokenness, in his shame and his sorrow and his fear and his confusion and his trauma and loves him. That's been my experience over these last years. I spoke a little bit yesterday about the trauma of my, that I experienced in life. You know, the violence, the, the poverty, everything else that, that was traumatic for me to live with. And he's coming to me in my trauma, still, and loving me. Just like he loved Adam in his. You know, our sins cause us to withdraw from God. It doesn't cause God to withdraw from us. We think God can't look at sin. That's rubbish. Proverbs is quite clear. In Proverbs 15, I think it's verse 10. It says, The eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. If God is keeping watch, he's not just glancing over, but he's observing, he's intently watching. You know, whenever you did what you did, he was watching. And do you know what? He wasn't contaminated by what you did. He didn't hate you for what you did. He wasn't angry with you for what you did. He wanted to take you in his arms and comfort you. That's what he did with Adam. When he put that cloak around him, he took him in his arms and to comfort him in his pain and his distress. And he still wants to do that to us today. To comfort us in our pain and our distress. And so many of us have never known what it is to be comforted. When we've experienced traumatic events in our lives, we've never had someone put their arms around us and hold us to let us know that they'll protect us, they'll look after us, they will make everything okay. And what Father did with Adam and what he wants to do with us is put his arms around us that we would know that he is going to make it okay. It might not happen immediately, but he's going to do it. That's what Jesus was all about. That's what the cross was about. Sin was the problem. You were never the problem. You were never the problem. Sin was. And the cross dealt with sin. It didn't deal with you. It was a public demonstration. Look, the things that keep you away from me, I am dealing with them here on this cross. And because I have dealt with them, because I have defeated sin and I have defeated death, you can now come and experience my embrace. The cross was for our benefit. It wasn't to quench God's anger or satisfy his justice. Because he's not a judge, he's not an executioner that we need Jesus to protect us from. I know we have this image of God as the judge in court. You know, I've been in court, some of you guys have been in court. The judge is not your friend. <laughs> you know, you don't, you don't crack jokes with a judge, do you? You know, that just adds another six months. <laughs> so you, you don't, you know, you, you don't have jokes. The judge never smiles at you. He wants you to know how serious this is. And so we have this image of God as that judge. He's serious, he's unsmiling, and you're in trouble unless your defence lawyer's good. <laughs> Most of us never had good defence lawyers. <laughs> Not that good anyway. I could have done with Ironside, but I never got him. <laughs> and so 
we have this picture of God like that and Jesus kind of standing in front of him going, no, don't do it, don't do it. Look at the holes. Don't forget. Don't forget the holes. And God's like, oh, wow. I'm glad you reminded me, Jesus. I almost threw the lightning bolts at him there. That's not what happens. You know that scenario? That was made up by a guy, an Italian guy, who was the bishop of Can the Archbishop of Canterbury in the, the 12th century. Guy, a man called Anselm. He created that whole scenario. Huh? What's wrong with this guy? He created that, that whole scenario because that's how they understood things in terms of justice because there is some judicial language in, in the New Testament. But we don't need protection from God the Father. You see, this is what the Bible says. God so loved the world, he sent his son. It doesn't say God was so angry that he sent Jesus to stop him from destroying the world. <laughs> That's not what it says. It says God loved the world so much that he sent Jesus to destroy sin and death so that we could find our way back home to him. He never changed. Mankind changed. Adam changed. Men driven by fear and, and sense of wrongness created religious systems to keep what they thought was the angry God happy. Men created all of these religious systems to, to make us feel safe from an angry God. So why did God put Leviticus in that? I'm just about to get there. Because he's telling them to do it. Ah, is he? Yeah. So here's the thing. Here's the, here's the thing. Israel wanted to be like the other nations. They wanted a king. And God said, but I'm your king. They said, no, we want a king like the other nations. So he gave them a king like the other nations. The other nations had laws and gods. And they wanted to be like other nations. So God humbled himself to come and relate to mankind on mankind's terms. That's incredible. That's phenomenal. God comes to mankind because mankind says, we want to be like nations. And God says, okay, let's do it your way. So here are the laws that the other nations have. I'll make laws like that for you. Here's a king like the other nations have. I'll give you a king like that. Because when you read through the scriptures, you actually hear the cry of God's heart. It's not to be that, that God. This is not his idea. This is not his perfect intention. You see it in Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 3, the cry of his heart, he cries out, I thought you would call me father and not turn away from following me. Wow. That's in Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 19. That's the cry of his heart coming out. The same cry that was there in the garden. He's saying, Adam, I want you to still call me father. Don't turn away from, from walking with me. But as mankind grew and they, they wanted to do their own thing, they, they followed in Satan's path. You see, what happened when Adam and his wife walked out of the garden, they walked out of the garden the same way that Satan had to walk out of the, the mountain of God. You know, we read in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 that Satan is cast out of heaven because of his ambition to take God's place. And what happens to the man and woman? Satan lures them into trying to become equal with God. And it results in them being put out of the garden, just like he was put out of the mountain. And he brings them into his experience. 
And I, I think he whispers in their ear as they're walking out of, the gar- out of the garden. You see, I told you he couldn't be trusted. I told you he was like that. I told you he would do to you what he did to me. I don't know if that happened. I can only imagine that Satan was saying those kinds of words to them. And so they came into the same existence as him, where they're fearful of God, they don't trust him. And God is so... You see, there is femininity in God. Otherwise, the woman can't be made in his image. So there must be femininity in him for a woman to be in his image. And so the femininity of God desires relationship with his children above all else. And he is willing to accommodate them. This blows my mind. God is willing to accommodate their desire to be like the other nations just so that he can keep relationship with them. I think that's incredible. Wow. He gives them the cloak instead of the fig leaves. He gives them laws like the nations. He gives them kings like the nations. He sends them prophets and priests and judges and poets to try and convey the reality of his heart towards them. But they can't express his heart. They can take some of his words and repeat some of his words, but they can't express his heart. They couldn't communicate that cry of his heart. I thought you would call me father and not turn away from following me. And so he ultimately sends his son who will not only say what he wants him to say, but he will say it the way he wants it said. Because he wants to show us the way back to the garden experience. He never withdrew the experience of his embrace. He never withdrew the experience of his love. We just lost the way and forgot how to get there. And so he sent Jesus and Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father. In other words, we can't return there except we come through Jesus because he will show us the way back there. The Father's desire has always been for intimacy and connectedness. And now in Christ we are invited to return to that place that Adam knew, that place of rest and acceptance and embrace, the place that Jesus came out of and returned to to make a place for us, to bring us back into that place of fellowship and companionship. The cross is not about putting God in a good mood. He's not the angry God who punishes the sinners. He loved the world so much. He desired us so much that he made it possible for us to come back to what Adam knew. I think that's what the whole of Christianity is about. It's about our returning to the relationship that Adam knew in the garden. It's what it's always been about. And I don't think we've fully understood that. You know, we talk about, you know, every word in the Bible is the word of God. Well, I'm not convinced of that. The Bible is inspired by God, don't get me wrong. But Paul says this in Corinthians, we see in part, we know in part, we prophesy in part. And I think he's not just speaking about himself in the New Testament guys, he's speaking about the Old Testament guys too. They were human beings like us. They saw in part, they prophesied in part, they knew in part, they saw in part. And so they would hear God, but it would come translated through their understanding, through their heart, through their eyes. I know that's a huge concept, 
But if it's true that we only see in part and prophesy in part, then that means the prophets of the Bible only saw in part and prophesied in part. If Paul could say that about himself, possibly one of the greatest men of God that's ever lived, then I think we can safely say that about other men of God. And way back in the garden, when the man sinned, he changed how mankind approached God. But God never changed his approach to mankind. His love was never withdrawn. And we've lived centuries, we've lived millennia with this pattern of approaching God out of fear, out of trying to appease him and keep him happy and keep him quiet and, and obey him so that we can get the reward. And the priests and the prophets and all that, they all, they all ministered from their perspective of understanding. But sonship to the father is not about working to keep him happy or, you know, like the older brother does in Luke 15. He works to keep his father happy, thinking he'll get a reward from him. He says, you know, I've slaved for you all these years and you never gave me anything. But if you read the story of Luke 15, of the two brothers and the father, at the very beginning of the story, the father divided the property between the two brothers. And so this son who says he's slaving away, trying to please his father to get a reward from him, it was all his. But he never understood that he had an inheritance. And I think we live our Christianity the same way. We don't understand that he's already giving it to us. It's not about what we work for, it's what we receive as our inheritance. And he's, he says in, Paul, Paul says in, in, in 2 Corinthians 6.18, this is the promise of God, I will be a father to you. In other words, I will do for you the things that your biological father couldn't do. You know, I spoke yesterday, my dad was, uh, my earliest memories of him are with a Zimmer frame and then unable to, to stand up or walk unaided and then bedridden, you know, sorry, wheelchair and then bedridden. And so I didn't have a father who did anything for me. I don't remember ever getting a gift from my dad. I don't remember ever my dad saying, I'm proud of you, I love you. I don't remember my dad ever putting his arms around me. I don't remember any of that. I don't remember my dad talking to me about girls and cars and football and, you know, I, I had to try and work out all of that for myself and piece together bits and, th and things that I heard from other boys or read in magazines or... And God's saying, I will be the father to you that will do all that for you, John. He's saying to you, I will be that father that your dad wasn't to you. I'll do the things your biological dad couldn't do. You see, he takes the initiative every time. He carries his love to his children. That's what we see in that Luke 15. He runs to the younger son on that road coming home. He doesn't wait there angry with his arms crossed saying, oh, wait till he gets here, I'm going to knock seven colours of all kinds of stuff out of him. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to beat him senseless for his stupidity, for his rebelliousness. He doesn't do that. He runs to the son, he throws his arms around him, he ignores his son's attempts at saying sorry, and he restores him to his place of inheritance, affection and sonship. And the older brother, he treats him the exact same way. The older brother is angry, he says, I'm not going in to join the party. Now if that was me, I'd have said to the servant, I don't care how you do it. I don't 
care if you have to grab him by the hair and drag him in here kicking and screaming, get him in here now. But the father doesn't do that. He goes out, it says that he goes out to him. Not only does he go out to him, but it said he pleaded with him. He didn't go out and say, right, you get inside. It says that he pleaded, he begged him. He went out to this rebellious son and said, please, son, please come in. Please don't, please don't exclude yourself. Please don't miss the party. You know, your brother was dead. But now he's alive. He's lost and now he's found. Please come and celebrate with us. Wow. The father carries his love to his children. It's not about what you need to do. It's probably more about what you need to stop doing. Stop trying to please him. Stop trying to make yourself acceptable. Because he wants to carry his love to you. You know, so many of us have had dads who want, couldn't express love or affection to us. You know, my dad wasn't able to because of his disability. Perhaps of you, it was different. Perhaps it was your dad just wasn't there or he was violent or abusive or... I don't know, you know. We've all got different stories about our dads and, and what life was like with them. Or, or our mums or our guardians or uncles or whatever it, whoever it was. And so, for most of us, we don't know what it's like to be fathered. Or those of us who had fathers, we only have a, an imperfect image of what fathering looks like. And so it wasn't our experience to, to, to have him say, I'm proud of you, son, or to put you on his knees as a little girl and say, you're my beautiful princess. I'm so proud of you. You're gorgeous. You know, because that's what gives us our sense of, of identity, our sense of belonging, our sense of self-worth. And there is something in the human heart that longs for the approval of a father. That's what happened at Jesus' baptism. That's what happened in that Roman ceremony of, of heirship and inheritance. It was a father approving of the son, saying, this is my son whom I love. And that's effectively what God was doing that when he spoke to me that day in August 2005. He was effectively saying to me, John, you're my son whom I love. You know, we sang that song yesterday, you know, I think you're amazing. He still says things like that to me. You know, I, I, I might teach or preach and think, God, that didn't go very well. And he just said, son, you're amazing. Wow. It's not that he said something to me 2005 and, and he's been quiet ever since. He still says those kinds of things to me. He wants you to hear the same words, the same voice. In whichever way that you hear him. But we have inherited a way of life from our ancestors that causes us to look at God with fear and trepidation, that causes us to live within a religious system that's designed to manage God and please God and, and have him recognize us for our performance and reward us for our spirituality. But he's not asking this of us. This is not what he asks of us. He promises to be that father that we have never known. And the promise is that when we begin to experience him being that father, we will be his sons and daughters. That's what Paul says, isn't it? I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord. That's our part in it. We just let him love us. Being sons and daughters isn't about what we do or how obedient we are. It's about enjoying his company. It's about allowing him to pour life into us pour love into hearts where love has not been known. And I tell you guys, 
it's a painful experience to begin with. Because when love begins to come into our hearts, it touches the places of our pain and our wounding. It makes us aware of how broken we are. It makes us aware of how disappointing life has been for some of us. And the temptation is to run away from love. You know, I, th I think, I, I don't know if I said yesterday, but when I was first married and my wife would put her arms around me in bed at night, I would just freeze up and I'd say, don't touch me. We're just married. We're supposed to be in love and I'm saying, don't touch me. You see, love was painful. Love touched parts of my heart where pain existed and I didn't want that to be exposed because it hurt me. And my poor wife had to suffer rejection. She had to suffer her love being pushed away because I didn't know what to do with love. I didn't know how to handle love. I didn't know how to receive love. And when it was given to me, I didn't know what, what, to, what to do with this. What is it you want from me? You know, if you're showing me this affection, you must want something. What, I, I don't have anything to give you. I couldn't deal with love. And so it's not all rosy in the garden when he begins to love you because he begins to touch the pain of our lives. But the love being poured into the painful parts of our lives is what heals us and brings us into a life of sonship. I don't want to paint this picture of fluffy clouds and because that's not it, it's real life. But it's in that place of our pain that we experience him being father to us. That's what Adam experienced. In the place of his pain and fear and confusion, the father comes and puts his arms around him and puts a cloak on him and says, you're still my son and I still love you. And it's as we begin to experience that, what it is to be fathered, we begin to live as sons and daughters. We don't initiate it, he does. He initiates it. He wants to bring us into that place Jesus has prepared for us at his bosom. To bring us to a place of, of rest and stillness where we can hear him say, you're my son, I love you. You're my daughter, I love you. And there's nothing wrong with you. There's never been anything wrong with you. I've always loved you. I've never stopped loving you. But maybe you've been like me and you don't know what to do with love. It's too painful. You know, you're listening to me and you're thinking, I want to smash that guy's face in <laughs> because he's pushing my buttons. That's what happened to me in that room in Toronto. I wanted to smash James Jordan's face in because he was pushing my buttons, talking about love. I didn't want to know about love because love was sore. And I'd never experienced it, so I didn't know what to do with it. Maybe you're in that place too. And this afternoon and tomorrow, I want to talk about some of the, the issues that caused me to live like that and caused me to reject love and what God did to to deal with some of that. But this is who he really is. He's the father of the garden and he has never changed. And he doesn't punish sinners. He, he sent Jesus because he was not counting men's sins against them. But he was destroying death and sin so that men and women could come back to knowing him again, the way we were created to know him. Wow. I could keep going, guys, but I, I think that's enough. 
for today. Let's pray. Father, thank you. I know the truth is that our experience of love is very mixed in this room, Father. Some of us have, have tasted it and, and liked it, and some of us have never tasted it before. And when love has been shown to us or offered to us, we don't know what to do with it. And it's been much easier for us, God, to operate in a religious system that gives us rules and regulations about how to keep you happy. But Father, Peter tells us, as we said at the beginning, and Paul tells us that we have been rescued from that way of life. But we're not quite sure how to live life without those rules and regulations and those structures and those systems in place. And so you as the Father who carries his love to us, will you come to each one of us in the days and weeks and months ahead and begin to show us how to receive love, how to allow you to love us as the Father of the garden and not the God of Israel. Show us, Jesus, how to take that road back to the place of rest that we were destined for. The place of rest that you came from, that you returned to and created a place for us there at the Father's bosom. Like Thomas, we're saying, we, we don't know the way, Jesus. <laughs> Show us the way. Help us to, to walk through the difficulties, the pain, as you lead us back. As you deal with issues of our hearts that stop us from coming to that place of rest and love and reassurance and acceptance. Back to that place of love that says, there's nothing wrong with you, son. There's nothing wrong with you, daughter. Back to that place where we know what it is to have your arms around us, to lean back against your bosom and hear your heartbeat. Thank you, Papa. Thank you. Father, that you would begin to teach us about who we really are. We are your offspring. We are your sons and daughters. Father, show us how to let you be a father to us. Because we don't know what that's like. Thank you that there is your desire that we move from servants to friends to sons and daughters. Ah, oh, Father, you're so kind and so good. More than I ever imagined, more than I ever knew growing up. And I pray for my brothers and sisters, I pray the prayer of Paul, Father, I pray that the God of glory, the wonderful Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation to know you better. Yes. And that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened by your love poured into them. That we might see the hope to which you have called us, the glorious inheritance that we have in the company of the saints. 
that we might live life to the full, that we might come fully alive in your love and bring glory to you as we live our lives. Amen. Thank you for listening to the iDestiny podcast. For further information, check out www.idestiny.org.uk.